Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is episode four. Today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite arguments for the existence of God. Last week we wrapped up talking about the Kalam cosmological argument, which argues for the existence of God from the origin of the universe and the law of causality. Today we will be talking about the argument from design, but I'm going to be talking about a very specific design argument. The design argument, also known as the teleological argument, has it's actually a, a family of arguments. There's the argument from irreducible complexity, which people like Michael Behe of the Discovery Institute have um, popularized, like in his book Darwin's Black Box. There's the argument from biological information, which the philosopher of science Stephen C. Meyer has popularized. But there's also the argument from cosmic fine-tuning. And that is the argument we will be talking about in this podcast. Now, what is fine-tuning? What do I mean by that? Fine-tuning, in the last 50 years, scientists have discovered that the laws and the constants of physics unexpectedly conspire in an extraordinary manner to make the universe habitable for life. If the laws of physics were tweaked by even a hair's breadth, life could not be possible anywhere at all in the universe. Life of any kind could not exist anywhere at any time in the universe. And I think that this extraordinary fine-tuning is best explained by intelligent design. Now, what so what um what are the laws of physics and what would happen if they were any different? What happened what would happen if the universe were any different than the kind that we live in? Let's look at some examples of fine-tuning and the extraordinary precision in which they fall. After I do that, I'm going to give an argument, a syllogistic argument for design as the best explanation of that fine-tuning. Finally, when I'm done with that, I'm going to look at objections to the inference to design that atheist philosophers, atheist scientists, atheist bloggers, and really atheists of all kinds have lodged against the argument over the years. And I'm going to try to fit all of this into one podcast episode. I don't want it to be like last week where we had a two-part episode. I kind of want I'm doing a series on natural theology where I'm going through my five favorite arguments for God's existence. Next week we'll be talking about the local fine-tuning of the universe and after that we'll be talking about the moral argument and the ontological argument. And I kind of want to have these be one-part episodes because I'm really eager to start having some guests on this program. Angela Fagate, Rihanna Allen, David Parrish. I told you about these in the introductory episodes. So I'm going to try to 
go through these as fast as I can, make it a one-hour talk. <clears throat> Examples of fine-tuning. First example I want to look at is the strong nuclear force. This force is one of the four fundamental forces of nature. The strong nuclear force is responsible for, for binding together protons and neutrons at the center of every atom. Now, just knowing that alone, just knowing that the strong nuclear force is why atoms stick together shows you how enormously important that this constant is for intelligent life. After all, everything is made of atoms. My body, your body, the body of this chair, the body of my computer, um, my computer, my chair, my uh, Sony recorder, my microphone, my house, the trees outside my uh, bedroom window, galaxies, stars, planets, everything is made of atoms. In fact, it has been said that you should never trust an atom because they make up everything. <laughs> so, if the strong nuclear force were either stronger or weaker, it would have a devastating impact on life. But just what exactly would happen if the strong nuclear force were off by a little bit? Well, if the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, it would not be strong enough to bind together the protons and neutrons in the nucleus of atoms. And in that case, the only atom that would exist throughout the entire universe would be the hydrogen atom. This atom, is, uh, only, it only has one proton in its nucleus, and it has only one electron orbiting the nucleus. There are no other protons and no other neutrons in the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. It is the simplest atom there is. One proton in its nucleus and one electron orbiting its nucleus. And if the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, that is the only kind of atom that could exist. So, obviously, this is uh, detrimental to life because... Nothing can evolve from hydrogen. You can't have stars, you can't have planets, you can't have galaxies. You can't even have the simplest of biological organisms from hydrogen gas. So, if the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, no life. But what if it were slightly stronger? Well, if the strong nuclear force were slightly stronger, it would be so efficient at binding together subatomic particles that no hydrogen atom could exist at all. No hydrogen would, it would exist anywhere in the universe because the strong nuclear force would be so strong that every proton would find itself attached to other protons and neutrons. In this case, you would have a universe that consists of only heavy elements. Now, life is impossible if hydrogen is the only element in existence. But it's also impossible if hydrogen doesn't exist at all. What are the odds that the strong nuclear force should be finely tuned for life? One part in 10 to the 30th power. That's a 1 followed by 30 zeros. One chance in a nonillion.
that the strong nuclear force should fall into the life-permitting range. Okay, two, the weak nuclear force. This force is responsible for the radioactive decay of subatomic particles, and it plays an essential role in nuclear fission. If this force were any stronger, matter would convert into heavy elements at a pace too rapid for life. Any weaker, and matter would remain in the form of just the lightest elements. Either way, the elements crucial for life chemistry, such as carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus, wouldn't exist. How finely tuned is the strong nuclear force? One part in ten to the one hundredth power. That's a one followed by one hundred zeros, also known as a Google. That's where Google gets its name. It's, it's the number one followed by one hundred zeros. One chance in a Google that the weak nuclear force would fall into the range needed for life to be possible. The force of gravity must be finely tuned. The strength of gravity determines how hot the nuclear furnaces of stars will burn. If gravity were slightly stronger, stars would burn too rapidly and too unevenly for life. This is bad because any star capable of support of hosting a life-permitting planet must be stable and long-burning. But if gravity were slightly stronger, the stars would bur- all of the stars would burn up too rapidly and too unevenly and life would never have a chance to evolve. Now, if gravity were slightly weaker, the stars would never become hot enough to ignite nuclear fusion, and therefore many of the elements essential for life would never form. You see, the elements, the life-essential elements, are cooked, essentially, inside the, the cores of stars. The stars act as a sort of furnace, an oven, in which these elements are are fused and if gravity were slightly weaker the stars would never be able to reach a temperature high enough to synthesize these elements um a uni- if a universe in which gravity is slightly weaker is a universe in which no elements heavier than hydrogen and helium exist now what are the odds that gravity should fall within this very narrow range one part in 10 to the 36th power That's 36 zeros after the number 1. Now, it's hard to visualize this in probability, so I'll give you an illustration to help you grasp these low odds. Uh, In his book, The Case for a Creator, and also in the the film of the same name, Lee Strobel gives an analogy of a ruler stretching from one end of the universe to another. That's like... 19 billion light years worth of inches. And the odds that gravity would fall into the just right range would be to fall on one specific inch out of the... No, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Out of the 93 billion light years worth of inches. One specific inch out of the 93 billion billion light years worth of inches. It is statistically impossible that out of 93 billion light years worth of inches, that's the one inch it happened to fall on. 
Number four, the electromagnetic force. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross explains that, quote, if the electromagnetic force were significantly larger, atoms would hang on to electrons so tightly that no sharing of electrons with other atoms would be possible. But if the electromagnetic force were slightly weaker, atoms would not hang on to electrons at all. And again, the sharing of electrons among atoms, which makes molecules possible, would not take place. If more than just a few molecules are to exist, the electromagnetic force must be delicately balanced, end quote. This is a, a quote from Hugh Ross's book, The Creator and the Cosmos. Now, what are the odds that the electromagnetic force would be just right for life? One part in 10 to the 40th power. Okay, let's go to a fifth finely tuned constant. The ratio of the number of electrons to the number of protons. If we had too many electrons, electromagnetism would overpower gravity, which, which would prohibit the formation of galaxies, stars, and planets. If we had too many protons, electromagnetism would dominate gravity, preventing galaxy, star, and planet formation. But if we had too many elec uh, electrons, electromagnetism would dominate gravity, preventing galaxy, star, and planet formation. Either way, life cannot exist. If life is to exist, there has to be galaxies, stars, and planets. If there are no galaxies, if there are no stars, if there are no planets, then there's no home for life to live on. What are the odds that we should have the just right ratio of electrons to protons? One part in 10 to the 37th power. The number 1 followed by 37 zeros. Now, one part in 10 to the 37th power is so improbable. This is just such a huge number that it is hard to visualize. In his book, The Creator and the Cosmos, astrophysicist Hugh Ross gives us an illustration to help us visualize this improbability. He writes, one part in ten, uh, quote, one part in 10 to the 37 is such an incredibly sensitive balance that it is hard to visualize. The following analogy might help. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes, all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. In comparison, the money to pay for the U.S. federal government debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. Next, pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents the same size as North America. Paint one dime red and mix it into the billions of piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 37th power. End quote. That is a mind-blowing improbability. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. If your friend managed to pick out the one red dime out of the billions of North American-sized continents worth of dimes, what would you conclude? That he picked the red dime by sheer chance? I certainly wouldn't. 
I would conclude that he cheated. He took the blindfold off and purposefully searched for the red dime. It is statistically impossible for him to pick out the red dime out of 1 in 10 to the 37th power. Okay, let's look at another one. The, it, the ratio of electron to proton mass. Now, we, we just talked about the ratio of the number of electrons to the number of protons. But their size or their mass, mu their mass ratio must be finely tuned as well. It's not enough just to have the just right number of electrons and protons, but their mass has to be just right as well. If the mass were off by a little bit, then chemical bonding would be insufficient for life chemistry. Now, how finely tuned is that? One part in 10 to the 37th power. Now, if you were gullible enough to believe that your blindfolded friend got the red dime by chance the first time around, would you really believe that he could get it by chance two times in a row? I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't. Okay, number, this is the, uh, this is, uh, the seventh finely tuned constant that we talked about. We can't talk about all of them because there are about 37 of these, so we're just going to go through a handful of them. The expansion rate of the universe is, must be finely tuned. If the universe expanded too rapidly, then all of the matter in the universe, and by rapidly, I mean rapidly, right after the Big Bang occurred, just just in its very early states, if the universe expanded too rapidly in its very, very early history, all of the matter in the universe would fly apart at a rate so rapid that gravity would not have the opportunity to collect the gas and matter and dust in the universe and condense them into galaxies, stars, and planets. And, obviously, life would be impossible. In this situation, you, the universe would be forever nothing but dispersed gas and dust. But, if the universe expanded too slowly, then gravity would be working on all of the stuff in the universe, all the material, all the, the elements, pull, and pull them back together, and the universe would collapse in on itself in a big crunch. And in this scenario, you also wouldn't have any galaxies, stars, or planets. So either way, you don't have a, a habitat for any sort of life to live on. If the universe expands too rapidly, then all of the matter in the universe flies apart at a rate too rapid for gravity to take all of the stuff in the universe and condense them into galaxy stars and planets. And the universe would exist forever as nothing but dispersed gas. But if the universe expands too slowly, then the universe collapse in, collapses in on itself in a hot fireball. Now, why is this the case? Because in physics, the gravitational pull of two massive bodies attract one another. And the larger those bodies are, and the uh, relative to one another, and the closer they are together, the more powerfully they will attract. And when the universe is young, and therefore small, all of the bits and pieces of the matter in the universe will be tightly clustered together, and therefore gravity will 
cause the universe's expansion to slow down. But as the universe gets older and older, and therefore bigger and bigger, the, gra uh, the matter grows farther and farther apart, gradually, and therefore gravity becomes progressively insufficient in its ability to slow down the cosmic expansion, while dark energy, on the other hand, becomes more efficient. Now, I'm going to talk about dark energy in a moment. I know that sounds really cool. That sounds like a sci-fi term, doesn't it? Dark energy. Um, anyway, if the, the universe has to expand at a just right speed, too fast or too slow, no home for life to live on. The late Stephen Hawking explains that, quote, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size, end quote. Now, this is Stephen Hawking. He was an atheist. He has no theological axe to grind, and yet he explains in his writing that this expansion speed of the universe has to be just so. Now, the astrophysicist Hugh Ross, in a relatively recent interview he had on Frank Turek's uh, crossexamined.org podcast, he said that Hawking actually underestimated the fine-tuning of the expansion rate. He said it's actually even more precise than that. But, a hundred thousand million million is still really improbable. Okay, now let's talk about dark energy, that cool sci-fi term I just used a moment ago. It has to be finely tuned. Now, first of all, what is dark energy? What is this thing? Dark energy is a type of energy, as the name would suggest, that is embedded in the very fabric of space. The universe's expansion is governed by two things. Dark energy, this energy density that is embedded in the very fabric of space itself, and gravity. It, I find it helpful to think of dark energy and gravity as being like the gas pedal and the brake pedal of the universe. The dark energy being the gas pedal and gravity being the brake pedal. Uh, dark energy is working to make the universe bigger and bigger cause, to cause it to expand, while gravity is, is working against it, trying to pull everything together. So, for the expansion rate to have been just right, both dark energy and gravity have to be finely tuned. Think about it this way. If, if, you, are, if you have your feet on both the gas pedal and the brake pedal of your car... That's going, to depend, that's going to depend on how fast your car is going. If you've, got your brake, if you've got your foot more prominently on the gas pedal than the brake pedal, your car is going to be going faster. But if the brake pedal is more prominent, then you're more likely to be going slower and be putting a lot of stress on your engine, mind you. So, these two forces have to be finely tuned with respect to one another, for the, for the universe's expansion to be just right. Now, what are the odds that dark energy should be just right? One part in 10 to the 120th power. That is 120 zeros after the number 1. Now, again, this is just such a huge number that I'm going to have to give you a, an illustration to help you truly appreciate these odds. 
Lee Strobel, in The Case for a Creator movie, gives this example to help us grasp this how improbable this is. He says that dark energy, the odds of dark energy being just right, are the same odds as if you were to fly thousands and thousands of miles out into space, and you turn around, and you throw a dart at the Earth, and you just so happen to nail a target that is a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. Wow. However, this fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the dark energy, or also, also called the cosmological constant, this pales in comparison to the next parameter that I'm about to talk about. This is the, the entropy level of the early universe. Now, the entropy level of the early universe, you, um, if, you, if you don't know what entropy is, entropy is just the level of decay or used-up energy. Um, remember from the uh, a couple of episodes ago when I talked about the second law of thermodynamics, which causes an increase in disorder over, uh, over time, an increase of or actually a, a decre- an increase of unusable energy and a decrease of usable energy that's that's basically what entropy is it's uh, it's a it's an increase of disorder or if you want to think about it another way a decrease of order and so this this level of entropy had to be just right in the early stages of the universe if life were to exist and this is just absolutely mind blowing. <clears throat> the level of fine tuning has to be one part out of ten to the power of ten to the power of one hundred and twenty three. In other words, ten to the one hundred and twenty three zeros after the number one. If you want to get an idea of how huge this number is, if you can, <clears throat> then imagine this. Let's say you set a laptop com- computer in front of a two-year-old toddler with Microsoft Word open, and you tell him to, you've, got, you've already typed in the number one, and you tell this toddler to, to type in zeros until he gets 10 to the 123 zeros typed out. How long will it take this toddler to type in 10 to the 123 zeros? He would die as he would die of old age before he got done typing all of the zeros. Okay, now let's say you replace this this uh, unfortunate old man who wasted his life typing in zeros <laughs> and you you replace him with another toddler and he picks up the work of his predecessor ty- typing in zeros. How long is it going to take him? Well, he would also die of old age before he got finished. In fact, you could go through ten generations of men who spend their entire lives typing in zeros in this Microsoft Word document, and you would not get this number written out in full. That is an unbelievably gigantic number. When I first found this out in a, in a physics textbook, my head nearly exploded. I, I, I just, I, we can't even fathom a number that huge. Now think about this. That's not, 
this is not even counting the number of members in a collection of items that the written number is supposed to describe. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the number of members in a collection of items always outnumbers the zeros in the numeral that's describing the number of members in the collection. For example, in uh, the number 100 has only two zeros. But there are far more, if you have 100 marbles, you would have far more marbles than you would zeros in the numeral 100. There's only two zeros in the numeral 100. If you had a stadium of 1,000 people, you would have far more people in the stadium than you would have zeros in the numeral 1,000. You would only have three zeros in 1,000. Now, 1,000, that's, that's, a, that's a big number. That's a lot of people. For so few zeros to describe so many people. Now, if that small number of zeros can describe such a large number of people, what would a collection of items look like in which the numeral had 10 to the 123 zeros in the number, the numeral? And by 10 to the 123, I mean 123 zeros after the 1, which describes the number of zeros in the number. 10 to the 123 zeros in the number. 10 to the 10 to the 123. To return to Hugh Ross's dime analogy, just how many dimes would your friend have to search through to get the red dime? Well, remember how improbable it was for your friend to get 10 to one, uh, t one red dime out of 10 to the 37 coins? That was just 37 zeros in the number. One, in, in that analogy, you would cover one billion continents the size of North America, and all of these dimes would reach a height of 239,000 miles. And you blindfold your, your friend and ask him to pick out one dime out of the one billion North American continents worth of dimes. That was just 37 zeros. But this... This probability, this has 10 to the 123 zeros. This is billions upon billions upon billions upon billions more uh, times more improbable than in the original dime illustration. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, what would happen if entropy were any more or less in the early stages of the universe? Well, in an article on Reasons.org, Hugh Ross explains that, quote, If the rate of decay were any lower, galactic systems would trap radiation in such a manner that stars could not form. Starless galaxies would fill the universe. On the other hand, if the decay rate were slightly higher no galactic systems would form at all. In either case, there would be no terrestrial ball to serve as a home for life. End quote. And that's from Hugh Ross's uh, blog post or article, Why a Decaying Universe, which you can find on reasons.org. Now, 
There, we could talk about so many more examples, but we don't have time. What is the best explanation for this fine-tuning? What? How is this to be explained? I think that an intelligent designer purposefully tweaked nature's constants and quantities so that they could take on the values needed to support life. <clears throat> to make this argument, I'll employ a syllogism that the philosopher William Lane Craig uses in his books On Guard and Reasonable Faith. 1. The fine-tuning is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. 2. It is not due to physical necessity or chance. 3. Therefore, it is due to design. This is a logically valid syllogism. The rule that this law, uh, that this argument goes by, is disjunctive syllogism. If the premises are true, the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. So, are the premises true? Let's look at them. Premise 1 shouldn't be debatable. It's just a list of possible explanations for how one would account for this extraordinary cosmic fine-tuning. How could anyone object to just a list of possibilities? Now, if the skeptic can think of another example, he's welcome to add it to the list, and then we'll consider it when we come to premise two. But in the over the past 50 to 60 years that the fine-tuning has been debated, these three options are the only ones that have been put forth on the table. Physical necessity, chance, or design. So, it seems that this premise is true. It's just stating the list of options available to us. What about premise two? Premise two... Oh, well first, let me explain what these options are. Physical necessity, chance, or de design. Physical necessity states that the laws... The constants and quantities of physics had to be the way they are. That something physically necessitated them to be the way they are, and that there was no chance that they could have been any differently. What chance is the alternative that the the constants and quantities take the values they do simply by sheer accident. And design is uh, the alternative that an intelligent creator purposefully made the laws of physics take these values. So, which of these is the best explanation? Physical necessity? I don't think physical necessity is plausible. There... Th this alternative is an assertion that gravity couldn't have been more or less attractive than it was, or that the universe could not have expanded any faster or slower than it did, or that we couldn't have a, a different number of protons or a different number of electrons. That, But it doesn't seem like these things had to be the way that they are. It certainly seems like they could have been different. So, if someone wants to say that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to physical necessity, they bear a burden of proof. Otherwise, it, they are just putting this forth as a bare possibility. Well, could it be the result of chance? I don't think so. The Lee Strobel in the movie The Case for a Creator said that the odds of the cosmological constant, or dark energy being just right, is if you flew thousands of miles into space, turned back, threw a dart at the Earth, 
and you just so happen to nail a target a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. And in his book, The Creator and the Cosmos, Hugh Ross says that the odds that the ratio of the number of electrons to protons is one part in 10 to the 37th power. And as we saw from the dime illustration, this is just extraordinarily improbable. And the level of low entropy in the universe, one part out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123... The scientist Roger Penrose says that the odds of our solar system forming out of a random collision of particles is 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 60. But Penrose calls this number utter chicken feed in comparison to 10 to the 10 to the 123. Each one of these constants and quantities is statistically impossible on their own, but when you multiply them all together, improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. It is not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it is due to design. Given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion logically and necessarily follows. Now, let's look at some objections. As with the previous argument, we need to look at objections that atheists have typically raised against the fine-tuning argument to see if it's really as sound as it appears to be. Once again, I'll be looking at these objections in order of the specific premise of the argument that they attempt to refute. As I said, premise one is indisputable. It's just a list of possibilities. So there really are no objections lodged against it, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. So we're going to move on and look at objections to premise two. Objection one, the multiverse argument. Perhaps the most common response to the fine-tuning argument is that we live in an infinite our universe is just one of an infinite number of universes. And therefore, because there are an infinite number of universes into existence, it is, st it is statistically inevitable that a life-permitting universe would exist somewhere in the world ensemble. The skeptic Martin Rees, who became a, a professor of astronomy at Cambridge in his 30s, illustrates it this way, quote, if there's a large stack of clothing, you're not surprised to find a suit that fits. If there are many universes, each governed by a different set of numbers, there will be one where there is a particular set of numbers suitable to life. We are in that one. End quote. In other words, our universe is just one in an infinite number of universes, and given the laws of probability, life is guaranteed to exist in at least one and we happen to be in that one, so this theory gives chance a chance. Does the multiple universe theory work? I don't think so. I have There are four major problems with it. First of all, is that there, the first problem is that there's no evidence that a world ensemble even exists. No one knows whether there are any other universes at all, much less an infinite number of them. In fact, I don't think there could even be any evidence for any other universes. I mean, it's not like you can hop out of one universe and into another. You can't see these other universes. You can't see them. You can't 
feel them, you can't smell them, you can't taste them, you can't detect radiation from them, you can't verify their existence in any way. So, there, so there's no evidence for the multiverse hypothesis. If the atheist wants me to abandon intelligent design as the best explanation, then he's got to provide some good evidence for this world ensemble hypothesis. In fact, I find it quite ironic that atheists usually chastise believers for having blind faith in God's existence and in the truth of Christianity when they are willing to place blind faith in this uh, radical theory of infinite, unseen, untouchable, untastable, unsmellable universes. Secondly, the multiverse has too much explanatory scope. Yeah, if there were an infinite number of universes out there, then the fine-tuning of the universe could plausibly be explained by chance. The problem is, is that everything else would also be plausibly exchanged, uh, explained by chance. There's not only, in an infinite world ensemble, there's not only an infinite number of chances for the constants and quantities of physics to fall into the life-permitting range, there's an infinite number of chances for every other event as well. So you could appeal to the multiverse to explain any event. Imagine if you were playing poker games with one of your buddies, and you got a royal flush ten times in a row. Your buddy says to you, you are cheating. He accuses you of cheating, and you're like, no, I'm not. Uh, I know it looks really improbable that... It, that I would get a royal flush every single hand. And I know that it looks like this is by design, that I'm cheating, but you've got to understand, we live in, a, in an ensemble of infinite universes. So there's an infinite number of poker games going on. There's an infinite number of, of, of yous and me's out there playing poker games. And in one of those universes... There's bound to be one where every time I deal, I get a royal flush. Now, would you take your friend's explanation seriously? I hope not. <laughs> if it were me, I would respond, You think I'm an idiot, don't you? You are clearly cheating. You could explain the existence of a Boeing 747 as being the result of chance. Uh, you could say that a tornado hit a junkyard, and tossed a bunch of mechanical pieces together until it formed a Boeing 747. Even though that is extremely improbable, statistically impossible even, there's an infinite number of universes out there, so there's an infinite number of junkyards, an infinite number of tornadoes uh, doing things with those... Uh, pieces of scrap in the junkyard, and so in one of those universes, it's bound to form a Boeing 747 in one of them. In at least one of them. So how do you, how do, if we see a Boeing 40, a 747, how do we know that this isn't that universe? How do we know that we're not living in the universe where a, a tornado just so happened to form a Boeing 747 by chance? And therefore... The Boeing 747 does not need an intelligent designer. If the infinite universe theory were accepted, no criminal could ever be convicted in a court of law. 
why couldn't a defense attorney say, you know, Your Honor, I know it's highly improbable, but I say that chance chemical formation is the reason my client's fingerprints are on the weapon. That could be, after all, there's an infinite number of universes out there, and there's an infinite number of versions of my client, and an infinite number of murder weapons, and an infinite number of murder victims. And so, in one of them, chance chemical formation is bound to uh, get my client's fingerprints on one of them in one of the universes. So, are you really going to send my client to the death penalty? I mean, uh, to, to the uh, to the electric chair. Do you think that the uh, defense attorney would be able to get his client off? If you were the judge, would you accept that explanation and acquit him? I don't think so. I could go on and on with examples of extremely improbable events you could explain by appeal to the multiverse, but here's the thing: no one appeals to the multiverse to explain any of these. They only appeal to the multiverse to explain the fine-tuning. That is very suspicious. If we, wouldn't if we would appeal to intelligent design in all of these other cases, rather than the multiverse, why should the fine-tuning be any different? Thirdly, Occam's razor favors design. Occam's razor is the scientific principle that you don't multiply explanatory agents for a given phenomenon in question uh, beyond what is necessary. If one explanatory agent or mechanism can explain the phenomenon, then you go with that. In the case of the multiverse versus God, Occam's razor favors design. It favors God. We, because in this case, we have one intelligent designer as opposed to an infinite number of universes. So Occam's razor says, go with design. Finally, this is perhaps the, the worst problem with the multiverse, and that is what has been be, be, become known as the, the invasion of the Boltzmann brains. Now, what is a Boltzmann brains? The physicist John Kinson talks about this in his book, Does Mathematics Point to God? If an, af if an infinite number of universes exist, then every logical and physical possibility is actualized somewhere in the infinite ensemble. It is logically and physically impossible for a Boltzmann brain to exist in at least one universe. So therefore, if an infinite number of universes exist, there also exist Boltzmann brains. A Boltzmann brain is named after the physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. John Kinson explains in Does Mathematics Point to God that, quote, A Boltzmann brain is a brain that is the only existing thing in a given universe. The brain then imagines everything else within that universe. However, nothing that the brain imagines is real. Everything is just an illusion, a dream. The only thing that really exists is that one brain. There are no planets, no stars, no galaxies, no other matter or energy in that world other than that the atoms that make up that single Boltzmann brain. End quote. Kinson went on to say that, quote, 
it takes less resources, energy, for the multiverse to create a Boltzmann brain than it does to create an entire 14 billion year old universe with 100 billion stars, end quote. And then John Kinson said that the ratio of, a- of the atoms in a human brain to the atoms in the universe is about 10 to the 26th to 10 to the 80th power. This is about 10 to the 54. This means that it, the multiverse could create 10 to the 54th power Boltzmann brains with the same amount of resources that it used instead to create our universe. John M. Kinson then went on to say that the number of Boltzmann brains is likely to be 10 to the 54th power times more plenteous than universes like ours. Therefore, if you accept the infinite universes theory, you must concede that Boltzmann brains exist. Moreover, there is a very good chance that you are a Boltzmann brain and that the entire world around you, your room, your MP3 player that you're listening to this podcast on, everything is just a projection of your own imagination. However, no sane person believes that they are a Boltzmann brain. Therefore, no sane person should accept the infinite universe hypothesis. If one thinks it is absurd to suppose that they are a Boltzmann brain, they ought to also think that the multiverse is absurd as well. Finally, to make one la- to, to make a point similar to the last one, if the infinite universe theory were true, this mathematically entails that there would be billions of universes where statistically impossible, yet physically possible, things occur, such as horses popping into and going out of being through a collision of random particles, or where people get killed due to tiny pockets of oxygen atoms clustering together and then quickly running into people at high pressure like bullets. In fact, there would be trillions of universes in which random collisions of particles form a, uh, a uni- form a, a solar system the size as ours, but no other stars, galaxies, or planets. And, and all of the other stars, galaxies, or planets are just illusions, mere pictures on the heavens. But given that we don't find these things, that, stro- that is strongly indicative that there is no infinite universe ensemble. Okay, let's look at a second objection uh, to premise two. This objection goes, Well, we really shouldn't be surprised that the universe is finely tuned. After all, if it weren't finely tuned, we wouldn't be here to notice it. Given that we are here, we should expect the universe to be finely tuned. This objector seeks to undermine the uh, inference to design by appeal to the anthropic principle. Now, what is the anthropic principle? The anthropic principle says that humans can only observe phenomenon in a universe that is finely tuned for their existence or is compatible with their existence. And therefore, we shouldn't at all be surprised that when we examine the laws of physics, they are compatible with our existence. And therefore, we, we, it could be due to chance. But the problem with this is easily demonstrated by means of an illustration. William Lane Craig, in his book On Guard, gives this illustration. He writes, 
quote, Imagine you're traveling abroad and are arrested on trumped-up drug charges. You're dragged in front of a firing squad of 100 trained marksmen standing at point-blank range. You hear the command given, Ready, aim, fire! You hear the deafening sound of the guns. And then you observe that you're still alive, that all of the 100 marksmen missed. Now, what would you conclude? Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that they all missed. After all, if they hadn't all missed, I wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. Nothing more to be explained here. Of course not. It's true that you shouldn't be surprised that you don't observe that you're dead, since if you were dead, you wouldn't be able to observe it. But you should still be surprised that you do observe that you're alive, in light of the enormous improbability that all of the marksmen would miss. Indeed, you'd probably conclude that they all missed on purpose, that the whole thing was a setup, engineered for some reason by someone. End quote. Do you get what Craig is saying? He's saying that even though we shouldn't be surprised that we don't observe that we're dead, we should be surprised that we do observe that we're alive. We shouldn't be surprised that we don't observe a life-prohibiting universe, but we should be surprised that we do observe a life-permitting universe, given the overwhelming probability that the universe would prohibit us from existing. The anthropic principle only means that it's probable that we should observe a life-permitting universe. It doesn't mean that it's probable that a life-permitting universe would exist in the uh, for us to observe in the first place. Let's look at a, a third objection. Any universe is equally as improbable as any other. This objection was brought up to me by someone I was talking to a few years ago uh, in on Twitter. They said the person I was talking to said that the fine-tuning is like a game in which a blindfolded friend randomly picks a grain of sand from a huge beach. In this game, your blindfolded friend picks out one grain of sand, and the odds are trillions and trillions to one. Yet, you wouldn't be justified in concluding he cheated and picked that particular grain on purpose, since any grain of, of sand is equally as improbable as any other grain of sand. Now, it is clear that this person has misunderstood the argument. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the fine-tuning argument is not trying to explain why this universe exists, or why this particular dial setting exists. Rather, it's trying to explain why a life-permitting universe exists instead of a life-prohibiting universe. I think that a better analogy, and one that accurately represents the fine-tuning argument, would be to mix one grain of salt in with the trillions and trillions of grains of sand. Now, even though any particular grain is equally as improbable as any other, nevertheless, it is overwhelmingly more probable that whichever grain my blindfolded friend picks, it will be a grain of sand rather than that single grain of salt. In the same way, whichever combination of power settings these various laws of physics took, it was overwhelmingly more probable that it would have been one of the numerous life-prohibiting settings rather than a life-permitting setting. 
Objection 4. The universe isn't finely tuned for life. Life is finely tuned to the universe. If these constants were different, then different life forms would have arisen. This argument says that if the laws of physics were to be stronger or weaker than what they are, then maybe we couldn't exist, but different life forms uh, may have evolved. Often, uh, atheists I've talked to on social media have brought up this objection, and they make use of an illustration by Douglas Adams, the well-known author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, although the following quote is not from that book. Quote, Imagine a, a puddle waking, uh, waking up one morning and thinking, This is interest, an interesting world I find myself in. An interesting hole I find myself in. It fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. It must have been made to have me in it. End quote. Richard Dawkins applied this to the fine-tuning at Adam's eulogy. Now, these atheists argue that just as the puddle would be a fool to think that the hole was made for it, so we would be fools to believe the, that the universe was designed so that we could exist. Now, the problem with this argument is that it radically misunderstands the consequences of what would happen if these constants and quantities were off by a little bit. For example, earlier in this podcast episode, I said that if the universe expanded just a little bit more quickly or just a little bit more slowly, then the matter... The matter in the universe would grow apart so quickly, they would fly apart so quickly that gravity would not have the opportunity to collect it and condense it into galaxies, stars, and planets. And by contrast, if the universe expanded too slowly, gravity would pull everything back together and the universe would collapse in on, on itself in a hot fireball. And again, you'd have no galaxies, stars, or planets. And without galaxies, stars, or planets... You can't have any life of any kind. It's not just that different life would be... It's not just that a different form of life would be possible. No life would be possible. I don't, I don't care what kind of life you're thinking of. Uh, little green men, Zygons, Daleks, uh, little creatures like Yoda, uh, um, my, or even microscopic organisms. What they all have in common is that they need stars and planets to exist. Well, if the universe expanded too quickly or too slowly, there wouldn't be any stars or planets. The same would be true if the ratio of the number of electrons to the number of protons were off by a little bit. If this were the case, the force of electromagnetism would disrupt the force of gravity in such a way that galaxies, stars, and planets would never form. Again, no galaxy, stars, and planets, no life. And if the mass ratio of the, of the electron to the proton were off by a little bit, chemical bonding would be insufficient for life chemistry. If electromagnetism were slightly stronger, uh, no elements heavier than boron uh, would be stable for fission. And if electromagnetism were slightly weaker, chemical bonding would be insufficient for life chemistry. Now, any, for any form of life needs life chemistry. 
If the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, it would be too weak to bind together protons and neutrons inside the nucleus of atoms, and therefore no atoms could exist in the universe except the hydrogen atom, uh, an atom consisting of only one proton and one neutron in its nucleus. Now, what kind of life can evolve in a universe that consists only of hydrogen, only of a single proton, single electron atom? As as you can see, the, the fine-tuning of the constants and quantities of physics greatly differs from the water in the hole, the, the puddle. It's, it's just an apples-to-oranges comparison. In fact, you could say that this objection doesn't hold water. I, can he I could just hear my listeners groaning now. Okay, we're going on in 59 minutes, and I don't have time to address all of the objections that I wanted to. Maybe I should have made this a two-part episode after all. So I'm just going to um, address one more objection, and then I'm going to point you to some resources in which you can look at object other objections to the fine-tuning argument. Um, so these, these objections we've looked at so far have tried to make chance a plausible alternative, tried to undermine the justification to design, uh, and we saw that they failed. Now I'm going to look at objection an ob one objection to the conclusion. Now again, just like with the Kalam argument, if, you use the if you're a Christian and you're listening to this and you want to use the fine-tuning argument against an atheist, I guarantee you that you will get this objection posed to you. It is inevitable. And once again, it is the God of the Gaps objection. This is that they, they say this is a God of the Gaps argument. That we are just plugging God in the, the gap in our knowledge. We don't know how to explain the fine-tuning. It's so inexplicable. We just don't know. So it must be the hand of God. Glory be to heaven. Uh, this is a very misguided objection. and It just won't die. This is not a God of the Gaps argument. When it comes to the fine-tuning of the laws of physics, we, there are only three possible alternatives. Physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, we saw that physical necessity and chance are untenable alternatives. We ruled them out. Those were our three options. Physical necessity and chance and design. And of those three, we ruled out the first two, since neither physical necessity nor chance can explain the fine-tuning, we're therefore left with only one remaining alternative, intelligent design. Intelligent design is the only explanation left, and so it must be the right one. And it has adequate explanatory power. If God exists and created the universe, he would certainly be powerful enough and intelligent enough to finely tune the laws of physics in such a way that life could exist. Um, we had physical necessity, chance, and design. We ruled out physical necessity and chance. Design's the only explanation left. Design has the explanatory power and scope and plausibility to account for the fine-tuning, so I think we're justified in going with this option. Um, whatever it is you're talking about, if you've got three possible explanations, and you rule out option one and option two, 
you are not making an option three of the gaps reasoning. You're making an inference to the best explanation. This argument takes the form disjunctive syllogism. Either P, Q, or R. Not P or Q, therefore R. Any argument that takes this form is not making an R of the gaps reason uh, conclusion. It's either it's either um, imagine imagine um, the following argument. Um, one, the Flintstones takes place in either the past, the present, or the future. Two, it does not take place in the present or the future. Three, therefore, it takes place in the past. This is a logically con uh, valid conclusion. The conclusion follows from the premises by the rule of inference known as disjunctive syllogism. Uh, in order for the conclusion to be justifiably reached, you have to affirm that both premises are true. So are these premises true? Premise one is indisputable. It's just a list of possible explanations for what, for which time period, the cartoon The Flintstones could be take place in. Uh, could take place in the, the list of possible time periods that it could be situated in. Uh, if and if the skeptic of the argument can think of a fourth alternative, he's welcome to add it to the list, and then we'll consider it when we come to premise two. But these seem to be the only possible explanations. So let's roll with it. What about premise two? It does not take place in the present or the future. Well, you look at the evidence in the cartoon, and you see that there are dinosaurs around, and there are extinct animals like uh, a woolly mammoth. And the theme song describes the Flintstones as your modern Stone Age family. Now, of course, modern Stone Age is just uh, a contradiction they put in there for laughs, but it's a, they're a Stone Age family. Now, when was the Stone Age? We're not living in the Stone Age now, and the Stone Age is not a future time period that took place in the past, that took place in the years of the cavemen. So, based on this evidence, you would say it's not the 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 Flintstones does not take place in the present or the future. Rather, the Flintstones takes place in the past. Uh, it does not take the the you would you would justifiably affirm the second premise. So, there's the conclusion. It the Flintstones take place in the past. Now, you would laugh at anyone who told you that your inference was a past of the gaps argument that you were just inferring the past because you had no other possible uh, time period in which you, you couldn't think of any other time period in which the Flintstones could take place in. Or think about it this think, think about another argument. Um, I originally had this in the uh, upcoming work, my upcoming book, The Case for the One True God, but I took it out because I thought it made the chapter too long. Uh, one, either Bob, Sam, or Jen ate the last pack of ramen noodles. Two, it is not due, uh, it was not Bob or Sam. Three, therefore, it was Jen. Now, the first, this is a logically valid argument, disjunctive syllogism. The first premise is indisputable. It's just a list of possible explanations. 
uh, let's say that this is uh, this is an apartment in which they're in which you have Bob and Sam, and Sam is letting his sister Jen live with them. Um, and these are the only people who live in the apartment. And you know, these are the only possible explanations for who could have eaten the last pack of ramen noodles. So, first premise is indisputable. What about the second premise? It was not Bob or Sam. Well, let's say Bob goes to the uh, le- to the cupboard one uh, one l- afternoon. Uh, he wants to have ramen noodles for lunch, and he sees that the last pack of ramen noodles, which he had his eye on yesterday, is gone. Now Bob knows that he himself did not eat the ramen noodles. He has, if he did, he would remember it. So he rules himself out as an alternative. It's not him. Now, Sam and his sister, uh, now Sam had been out of town for a week, so it couldn't have been Sam, because the ramen noodles were there yesterday, and they're not there today. So Sam is ruled out. So it's neither Bob or, or Sam. Okay, premise two is true. What about so the conclusion follows? Therefore, it was Jen. Jen ate the last pack of ramen noodles. Now, would you honestly say that this is a Jen of the Gaps argument? That Bob is is punting to Jen because he can't think of another culprit? This is absurd. This is this is a logically valid argument. It is a it design is a perfectly valid explanation so long as the other alternatives have been ruled out. This is not a God of the Gaps argument. This is not based on anything that we don't know. It's based on what we do know. Okay, an hour and nine minutes. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode, and I talk about more objections to the fine-tuning argument than I was able to in this episode. Um, if you want to look at it, I already, I have a book already out. It's called Inference to the One True God, Why I Believe in Jesus Instead of Other Gods. It is currently available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Um, there's also some articles, some blog posts on my website, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. You can just go up and click on the Arguments for God's Existence tab and I talk about some of the objections to the fine-tuning argument in some of, the, some of those articles. Some of the objections I opted to write about on my own volition. Others were questions sent in to me uh, via email. Oh, by the way, if you, if you have any questions about, about this argument, uh, we'll first see if it's already been addressed on the website. But if it hasn't, send me an email, cerebralfaith at gmail.com, and I will respond to your question in the form of a blog post. But I also have uh, another book that I'm working on. It's a revised and expanded version of Inference to the One True God. And in my opinion, it is a million times better than the version that's already out. It's just, it's way more heavily cited. I address the problem of evil, whereas I don't in the currently existing volume. I address more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's just, it's just... It's just a million times better, and so I'm really eager to get this out. It'll probably be out by June, July, or October at the latest. It just depends on uh, when I can get around to proofreading it. You know, I have uh, um, 
I have some other stuff I need to do, uh, study Bibles to get through, podcasts to listen to, stuff like that. So, if you want to look at the other objections that I hadn't, that I didn't have the opportunity to get around to, you can go to those resources. Um, hopefully, this are hopefully I have convinced you that God exists. If the last argument didn't, if you're an atheist listening to this, if the last argument didn't do it, hopefully this one did. If it hasn't, if you have an objection I didn't get to, go to those sources. Uh, Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. God bless you.